0: Hello and good morning uh, everyone. This is Dr. Phil Marshall. Um, I'm co-founder and chief product officer for Conversa Health. Uh, We're in Conversa Health's booth here this morning at uh, the HIMSS conference. Um, And so we're very excited to bring uh, this interview to you today because my guest today needs really very little introduction, but I'm going to go ahead and take a stab at it anyway. So joining me here uh, is Andy Slavitt. And Andy... Has been the most recent acting administrator for CMS, um, and in addition to that, has great experience in leading businesses is the CEO for Optum Insights. His own company, Health Allies, was acquired by United Healthcare. Uh, before that, had been working with uh, McKinsey and other companies. And so, uh, uh, did I get that right? Plenty of background. Yeah, plenty, of, plenty, background. plenty of background. And so, and so, with all of that said, I don't think that there's anybody who has a greater perspective from the provider point of view, from the payer point of view, from payment reform, from a payment reform standpoint, than my guest today, Andy Slavitt. So welcome to uh, the program.
1: Thanks, Phil. And I'm also wearing the pink socks.
0: And he is, for the record, uh, while those watching on video might not be able to appreciate, I can verify he's wearing the pink socks. Actually, that brings me to another point. Yeah. I'm not sure anybody who's interacted with Andy, over the last... Five, ten, maybe twenty years here at this conference would have seen him dress quite so casually. <laughs> For our radio listeners, he's in a uh, he's in a sweatshirt. He's wearing jeans, and he looks more relaxed than I think probably he would have been seen any time in the past several decades.
1: It, late night at Hems last night, Phil.
0: Late at night. Okay, yeah. so good. Then we're going to catch a particularly um, honest and open Andy Slavitt today, no doubt.
1: <clears throat> you'll get that. You'll get that from me. You'll get that anyway, right? Yes, you would have anyway. That. I'll do my best.
0: Well, and and so Andy was well known as. CMS for, for really you know, speaking your mind, being open to everybody about what you're seeing in the market but no doubt at your point in life right now you're really able to take a nice big exhale and, uh, and reflect on the market from a little bit more of an arm's length which no doubt is, is something that you're uh, appreciating and, well, and enjoying.
1: Well, one of the things I thought it was really important to do at CMS was to try to humanize it uh, put a little bit of a personality on it. I think uh, for so many of us Um, we feed off of what comes out of CMS yet it's you know it's a little bit opaque historically so you know my intention was to you know introduce a little bit of personality a little bit of fun a little bit of uh, a lot of that through social media through Twitter but also um, trying to set a tone for being very open and honest you know, all of us who work in technology understand that you can't do continuous improvement, you can't get better, unless you're willing to call out the problems and challenges, honestly. And, you know, government's not always uh, geared up as a place for people to really have a candid platform. So I think it was a bit unusual, uh, because I came in from the private sector, uh, had the background of uh, very simply just trying to make things better every single day, and to do that, uh it was great to have a platform, and was, uh, I felt no qualms about calling it like I saw it the best I could.
0: And while you were at CMS, Andy, you um, oversaw a, a lot of transformation. There was more um, value-based care initiatives. Bundled payment became a reality as opposed to something that, that was just talked about. More quality measurement and improvement activities. Um, MACRA and MIPS <laughs> was, was something that can't,
1: can't really be Are you overlooked. Are going to blame me for, for new acronyms?
0: I'm not going to blame you for the acronyms, but I will say that nobody saw it more up and close and personal yeah. than you did. As meaningful use, especially as we're here at the HIMSS conference, to think about how meaningful use has transformed the people that are currently standing in this room, um, and now that's all part of the MIPS payment uh, right. system.
1: Well, well, a couple, a couple reactions to this. Sort of, one is um, we really tried to, as rather than overly prog- programatize. Um, things that would influence delivery system reform. We tried to tap into the psyche of various people that um, are at the heart of trying to deliver better care. And so for one, I think uh, you know, indicating early on that we were gonna have 30% of Medicare payments be tied to quality and value, uh, making that statement alone was so important for the psyche of the hospital CFO or their boards as they considered you know how should they be investing in patient care, should they be investing in ways that our traditional fee-for-service or should they be investing in ways that support more value-based. And so knowing that Medicare, the biggest payer, was doing that was important. It also sent a signal to other commercial payers that we would get more traction in local markets. So I think at one level it was tapping into the psyche of, of people to invest. At another level, it was also trying to um, make it very clear that just because a payer was going to take action to support value-based care, the payer couldn't own it high quality care has to be owned by the people delivering care and by the patients themselves. And so um, I felt there was a little bit of uh, temptation to sort of overdo it, Uh, in other words, create more measurements, uh, require physicians to do a lot more scorecarding, uh, all to to sort of prove a point that, whereas what I think perhaps a better path to value-based care is our models and opportunities and approaches that are locally driven by physicians uh, that we can validate, have some, um, you know, uh, potential value for patients, and that we can just support them by giving physicians more freedom, uh, more, more time, more freedom, more investment, so they can take better care of patients. That's really the idea. You know, I think of MIPS and MACRA as a long-term change management process, and tapping into the psyche of the everyday physician is really tapping into folks who are feeling pretty beat up, they're feeling pretty overworked, um, there are a lot of people telling them what to do. Not all of them have clinical expertise. Not all of them are people they trust and respect, at least alone the government. So, you know, I think that, that is, I think, the right mindset to begin the journey. And I think for many people, they're very much at the beginning of that journey.
0: Well, I'd like to take some of what you said there and unpack that a little bit. Um, so, one of the things that you alluded to was that morale in the provider community. Those who are on the front lines in delivering care seems especially low um, it, it, it uh, there's common complaint about too many requirements too many hoops to go through too many payers to deal with um, and and so CMS of course just just one of many there um, and so we're at a time when there's hardly been more uncertainty as to what's going to be happening with regard to quality measurement quality improvement, payment reform, um, and and whether or not a person is going to be insured Mm -hmm. or not, in Mm -hmm. the same way that we historically have thought about that. Mm -hmm. And so maybe just for a moment, reflect on what you're seeing in the provider community right now, Mm -hmm. um, and what do you think is going to be best in the next three to five years, um, or maybe... Four years exactly <laughs> since mm-hmm. everything is seen through a political uh, lens, I suppose. But what should happen in sure. the next uh, few years to help providers, in particular?
1: Well, Phil, you know, you, you raise points of a lot of uncertainty, and, I, and I'll, I'll talk about some of those. But look, at the end of the day, the message that we all ought to be setting, send, sending, and whether we as the government, whether we as a payer, whether we as a technology vendor, whoever we is, is focus on patient care. Let us do the rest. Let us try to help you. But, but, but asking physicians to um, try to understand the complexities of health policy or a whole bunch of rules for how they get paid. At the end of the day, we, the royal hymns, are not doing our job if the doctors can't show up and have the information, time, productivity, capability, and sense of optimism and, and can do feeling and, and, and pride in their work and support to take care of patients. That's all we really want from them. So, we have uh, we have mucked it up because our system is so complex. And by the way, every system is complex. So, we're, you know, it's going to get mucked up. So one the definition way
0: or the of system. Am I wrong?
1: And sadly, in the case of healthcare, it, it is. Um, we've got too many things that are competing. And at some level, at some level, what great technology companies can do is find ways to isolate the physician from all that stuff. Tell them to get back to focus on taking care of patients. And these things will play out, and they're going to ebb and flow. And you know what? We'll have one administration. We'll have another administration. We'll have you know different ways of paying. We'll have all all those. We'll have new data. We'll have new technology. All those things. But the patient and the and the and their, their needs and their ability to build a relationship with the system, if that improves, all those other things become more, more modest. If it doesn't improve, if patients can't have a connected relationship with a regular relationship to the clinical community. And a coordinated sort of um, stint of their care, then we're going to continue to wrestle with all this stuff, and and then and you know and then Hims will be the same set of events every year, new, new solutions to the same problems, new buzzwords to describe the same solutions. Instead of how are we advancing every year? And I think that's what we're sorely missing.
0: Well, one of the great challenges that the the providers have, in particular, large delivery organizations, is they seem to be at capacity on the one hand um and yet they're being asked to do more um, from a value-based standpoint on another which implies that they really need to take more steps to know how people are doing between visits in addition to try to manage the um the very high volume of interactions and episodes of care that they're that they're managing and so how in your mind does the healthcare system become more scalable beyond beyond that model that's so visit-based and and still yet demanding more from those
1: providers? Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, One of the great joys I had when I was at CMS was I would take these trips to different parts of the country and get immersed in that community. And I would basically say, you know, coming to Seattle or I'm coming to San Francisco or I'm coming to Kansas City, take me to the most innovative areas. Let me meet with all of the the medical group. Let me meet with all the hospital CEOs. I meet with the, the health plans. I meet with the patient advocates. Uh, visit some, you know, innovation sites, and and you know, it's a good way to get a real feel for not just you know what goes on in the community, but even the diversity within that community. And I remember going, and I was in San Francisco, and I I went in in the morning to San Francisco General, and I sat around the table with um, the, the clinical team, the clinical leadership, and there were about. 50 or 60 people in the room including like when we went around and introduced ourselves four people that had the um, title MIPS analyst so this is this were, these were these were people that were prepared to figure out how to make their revenue work and how to make their business work um, and they had all kinds of quality support
0: so MIPS was a jobs creator is what you're saying
1: <laughs> yes yeah, <sadly>. that afternoon <laughs> these people used to be PQRS analysts so I'm not sure so the, that afternoon I went to uh, across the bay and sat down with uh uh, literally, it was a woman and her husband who worked in the front office, and literally it was just two of them and independent physicians great practice uh, I was impressed with what they were doing, but there weren 't dozens of people around the table to help and to support them and so we have this sort of diverse mix of of, of issues and interests and needs um, but at, but at some level um, what i 've seen is i 've seen even very small practices without those resources who are in models like medical home models um, really have a tremendous feel for who's in their patient population. And depending on, not even reflecting on who they're seeing in that particular day, but, but they have an awareness that they have uh, seniors who are at home and are not getting out and they're making sure someone is bringing their medicine and they're making sure that someone is focused on it. So however, however they do it, uh, and there's lots of ways to do it, um, having a patient, having a physician have the time uh, and the information to know who's in their panel, mm-hmm. what's going on in their panel, mm-hmm. and to be able to get information about what's going on in their panel is we shouldn't look at that as if it's the most complex technological challenge in the world. It's not putting a man on the moon. It's not building an iPhone. It's actually um, very simple logistics and technology and support. But I think our eyes off the ball, so I think we, I think we tend to overstimulate uh, everyone uh, in the equation, rather and the ball than folks being
0: ball being the patient, patient relationship, patient ball care, people. and taking care of that individual and their family.
1: That's right. Yeah. That's right. And a and a and a physician's ability to feel like they can do it in a way that brings back what they call the that joy of medicine. That they're a part of
0: that team. That they're yeah. a driver of those insights, that guidance, that that uh, that way to get to a higher level of. of quality of life. That's right. So, so let me ask you about that, because that's a big um, area of um, conversation here at the HIMSS conference this year. You know, last year it was a drinking game, if you said population health. This this year, um, it seems like um, uh, patient engagement, and even you're hearing about chatbot activity. Certainly, we're here in the Conversa booth, which is, you know, something that, that we focus a lot of attention on, but you just mentioned um, that the provider that you you saw the two person practice was doing a good job of reaching out and staying in touch with their panel and yet they have the pressure of a fee for service world still by and large and so how does how does one navigate that change how does one go from just being myopically focused on the feet that are walking through the turnstile mm-hmm. and more on the population that they that they serve so uh,
1: look i'm not a You're not going to hear me in love with a model or or other model. But what a medical home approach does basically saying, uh, we're we're, we're going to give you a per-member-per-month fee. And it's done in primary care. It's done in oncology. And and say you can use that however you think best with your population. um, I talked to one physician in Arkansas who had a rural population. um, Actually, this was a physician in New Jersey who set up a little Skype network for all of the geriatric patients because um, he realized there was a lot of loneliness. And he even set up Skype for them uh, when they had children that lived in other parts of the country. And, you know, he's a primary care doctor. And he said, of all the things I thought I'd be doing, he was in his 60s. He said, I I never would have thought that. He said, I was planning on retiring at 65. At 63, I entered a medical home model. All of a sudden, I started being able to, to... Do things I never thought I would do, and he said, "And I'm staying till I'm 70 now because, and it's all because he's got an investment uh, in his little practice that gives him a per member per month through a medical home model." Now, will it save money ultimately? Will it uh, lead to higher quality care in ways that are measurable? It's almost beside the point uh, to me because, um, at some level, you know you have to measure these things, but but you have to try these things, and and. In that particular case, I saw a physician completely engaged, feeling like he was able to see and touch more patients per day than he ever had in his entire practice, um, was saying things like, this is why I practice medicine. And at some level, I'm a believer that that's going to lead to good things. Does it scale? Is it the same for everybody? unclear, but what's clear to me is the secret sauce there was letting the physician make the choice himself. In other words, instead of saying, I'm going to measure you on how many people are... You know, you've talked to about smoking, which may or may not be the most important thing in his practice, but to say to them, here's, here's some investment, how do you want to apply it?
0: It sounds in that case like that individual was able to broaden his own perspective of what care means by providing a context for social support probably, you know, highly driven by the social determinants of health and what those individuals needed to to be healthier broadly writ, as opposed to what he usually addresses inside his school. Exactly. I had a
1: conversation with another physician who um, used that money, because I would ask the question, so how do you spend to um, co co-locate behavioral health specialists at their practice so they could do a real-time handoff if they saw uh, an addiction need or a behavioral health need, rather than... um, risk the chance that someone wouldn't make the appointment or that they wouldn't know how to have the conversation because she had a, she said she had a couple of younger physicians who necessarily weren't as comfortable. So they had someone basically rotating around their office now who was a specialist in behavioral health and addiction. And she said, I, now I can walk out of the room, walk back in and say, Hey, I want you to meet, uh, you know, this other physician. And she said, uh, it's made an enormous difference, an enormous difference. And if we were going to you know, pay someone to get to better measurement outcomes on on you know behavioral health metrics. I don't think we could do any better than what she just did. Uh, I, I'm you know I'm convinced that that's that that we're foolhardy when we try to say, oh, we want this. Let's create seven ways of measuring it instead of saying, you know what, you know best. And by the way, I think that's what unlocks that passion back in the physician. Absolutely.
0: So we've just got a few minutes left, but you've now uh, been able to be a more arm's length from what's happening from a policy perspective. And so I know that people listening and watching um, are going to want to get that sort of fresh sure. perspective now that you've been able to take a nice deep breath. So yes. I'm going to ask you uh, just a few what-if sure. um, sure. questions. And so what do you think happens in the healthcare system, broadly writ, if... If we have a change to our insurance paradigm, such that people who have either Medicaid insurance or exchange insurance um, begins to dwindle, perhaps there's a, a change to more catastrophic coverage as being the standard as opposed to um, high deductible uh, care. So if the insurance scenario changes in the U.S., what, what happens
1: to the healthcare system? Sure. Well, I'll take one element of this to start with. If you repealed Medicaid expansion, um, the likelihood that you would be able to replace it is very remote, and the reason is, um, it would require Congress to come up with a trillion dollars of new money, uh, which it's just never going to do. So you have to look at what happens if you were if you repealed Medicaid expansion. Um, some 17 million people would lose coverage. You'd have a 1.5 trillion dollar um, gross state product uh, would decline. Um, you'd see about over the next few years, you'd see about two and a half million jobs uh, disappear as bad debt grows, and it would raise everybody's costs. The so, bad debt being hospital on bad the debt on the patient on, on the hospitals mm-hmm. who are who are essentially back in the mode. Look, we lived in this world in 2009, so you don't need a lot of fanciful models to figure out what's going to happen. You just have to mm-hmm. look back at what the world looked like sure. in 2007, 2008, 2009. The good news is, I think nobody wants to go back there. Um, I shouldn't say nobody. I'd say um, most, most people don't want to go back there. I think there's a national consensus that we ought to try to move forward somehow. There, there'll be some zigzags on how we get there. Um, you know, Maybe we'll lose a little bit of ground. But I think, uh, you know. I got off the phone with a governor this morning who uh, told me if Medicaid is repealed in their state, they'll have a $6 billion uh, hole in their budget. That they will not be able to fill and that state has guess what they have a Repub- they have one Republican senator they have a bunch of Republican congressmen and those folks are going to have to take a very interesting vote at some point which is do I vote with my Republican leadership uh, for repeal or do I vote with the interests of my home state It's a very tough vote it's a classically difficult vote for someone to have to make and you know I would just ask people to put themselves in the shoes of Republicans right now in in Washington and just sort of at, see how it feels and then I think it'll help you understand what's going on a little bit so imagine you've been um, you've been dining out on um, uh, you know all of um, tearing into the aCA and Obamacare for seven years, and then you wake up November ninth like many of us, a little bit surprised that you now are responsible for putting forward a better set of ideas um, and so a lot of the things that you dined out on were sort of politically convenient things to dine out on, like, boy, the deductibles are high, people must hate that, and then of course you come to find out that most of the proposals that they've got put forward, first of all, there's not an unlimited number of ideas, so you start with that. Secondly, the ACA, who's largely geared around a set of Republican ideas in Romney Care, so very hard for Republicans to find yet new ideas. And so there's a, but there's yet a need to try to figure out how to do something different and creative. And so when you run that past the uh, smell test of the American people, they're gonna look for a few things. Are people gonna lose coverage? Are people gonna lose protections, i.e., against pre-existing conditions, against the, the caps uh, that, that used to exist in the gotchas that used to exist in insurance policies, against the kinds of things, is this covered, is it not covered? Uh, they're gonna be on the lookout for things like, is this increasing? The budget deficit, the ACA was fully paid for, and then some contributed to budget savings. Not so so with a lot of these proposals. So they've got a difficult challenge because I think everybody recognizes that there are plenty of ways to improve where we started. We would have liked to start to see those improvements happen several years ago. I'd love to see them start to happen now, but it's going to take people stepping back from uh, the, the kind of the cliff that they've driven to and stop and say, well, what's going to be best for all of us in the long run?
0: As I'm sure all the listeners and viewers appreciate, this is something that you're very passionate about. In fact, your, your Twitter um, uh, uh, feed is very popular, and uh, you're very active on that. In fact, I think you've had some articles written recently about, about some of the things that you've stated on Twitter, yeah. which is very exciting. Um, and so I would encourage um, everyone to check that out. Um, another question for you, and then uh, we'll be close to wrapping up. So we talked about providers, what they're going through. We talked a little bit about consumers. Um, we talked about uh, what happens if insurance goes away. And, and, but on the insurance side, on the insurance product side, we all know that the, um, the experiment of Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act and getting insurers to participate in those exchanges so that everybody can have access to a competitive field of affordable health insurance um, has not panned out. Uh, exactly as everyone would hope. Now there was a lot of reasons for that, no doubt. But still, people's options oftentimes are very limited. We've all, we've heard recently about Aetna and Humana and and other insurers that have basically said, uh, maybe for reasons that are somewhat politically motivated, that that you know they they just don't want to play. What can help insurance companies sure. uh, to want it. to participate in these markets? Very fair question.
1: So, right. So remember, we talked a little bit earlier, you know, we adopted a, I think we're re- fair to say, Republican-leaning free market system in a, in a world mm. where we have, and look, so I'm a private sector person. I love free markets. We also, uh, people who love and appreciate free markets also understand that markets sometimes have, are broken. Sometimes markets function, sometimes markets don't function. So we've got parts of this country, rural parts of this country, where both hospital consolidation and health plan consolidation are pretty light. So in, unless we have, uh, like we do in Medicare, a public option to fall back on, you're gonna always be faced with this this sort of uh, situation. I think what we saw over the last few years is that um, we have probably a slightly sicker risk pool than I think we thought we would have coming in. And I think the reason for that is not because we didn't track enough young people. That's not what the driver is. The driver is, uh, I think everybody assumed that employers were going to start to remember that we talked about employers dumping their employees onto the exchanges. Mm-hmm. Well, that would have brought a large pool of healthy people healthy to people. the exchange. Sure. Now that didn't happen. That's not a bad thing. Employers so kept providing. Employers kept providing benefits. coverage. So mm-hmm. that meant that the government's spending less on subsidies than they would have otherwise. So what that what that would tell you if you had a functioning Congress, you'd say, okay, well, we need to raise the subsidy levels a little bit, or or add some reinsurance something to counter the fact that we've got a slightly sicker risk pool. Now, not only didn't Congress do that, and instead, Congress actually took money that was committed to health plans. To away. help
0: them cover sicker populations right. than expected. Right. So mm-hmm. this,
1: this money, which is, which is a part of the rate stabilization fund, right. something in the order of eight to ten billion dollars. That was yanked away. Was taken away. So, you know, I like when I talk to entrepreneurs and they ask me to explain it, I say it like this, imagine that you're a CEO, and you have a board of directors that's not only not supporting you, but trying to make you fail. Trying to find ways to put limitations on you so that you fail. That's, that's a hard place to with. be in. That's what we've dealt with. And I think, you know, given all of that, it's time to turn the page. Uh, it's time for us to move to a place where we have that level of support. Fixing these problems are very, very simple. They're just math. And I'll give- So, so I'm gonna tee that up. Yeah. Because
0: that's gonna be our final point okay. here on the interview. And that is, what now? What should
1: happen now? So, one of the mistakes I think that was made early on with, in the passage of the ACA is they passed it in a way that created an additional hundred billion dollars of budget surplus, and that was probably um, uh, unnecessary. They probably could have done this and just said, you know what, let's make it budget neutral. And so, what the, the smartest thing to do, I think, with clear eyes is to say, take that hundred billion dollars a year we're saving and put. 10 or 15 or 20 billion of it back in in the form of higher subsidies for, for the middle class. I don't mean to raise the subsidies for everybody, I mean extend the subsidies out to higher income earners and put in place a reinsurance state-based reinsurance program, which mm. has been done in Alaska. And that but was that brings the rate, insurers It brings well. the rates dramatically down mm-hmm. and it creates the assurance to insurers that this is a market that will support their ability to offer affordable health products. Right now, I think, We've got a little bit of a schizophrenic set of messages coming from the administration saying possibly, well, not even enforce the mandate that exists in the books today. So this can be changed. I think the administration has the power to make a couple of very common sense changes, uh, and Congress needs to help with that. Will they do it? No
0: one knows, but we'll see. We certainly will. So, Andy Slavitt, thank you so much uh, for being here on the Health Innovation Media uh, channel. I know that I speak for a lot of people in thanking you, first of all, for your service, but we're going to be watching you very closely. Thank you again. Thanks, Phil. I appreciate all right. it.